0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quindlin, journalist and author whose work has appeared in fiction, nonfiction, and self-help bestseller lists. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her columns at the New York Times. Quinlan's book, A Short Guide to a Happy Life, has sold more than a million copies. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side, which tells the story of Nora Nolan, an upper middle-class white woman living on what appears to be an idyllic dead-end street in Manhattan, where the neighbors are friends and life appears charmed. But after a terrible incident takes place on her block, the cracks in Nora's life start to reveal themselves with greater clarity. We began the discussion with Quinlan sharing about how ideas for novels come to her.
1: I never approach a novel or the genesis of a novel in terms of topics. Um, it's, it's always about character for me. Um, and that usually starts to happen when I'm about three quarters of the way through the book I'm working on and I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I start to begin to get rumblings of another character, another set of situations. Frequently, for one reason or another, they grow into novels that have some sort of a theme or topic to them. But I always begin um, with my protagonist. So the genesis of Alternate Side would be <clears throat> a moment when I started to think about this woman named Nora Nolan who'd been in the city since she graduated from college and and loves it here. And over five or six months, during which I'm finishing the book before um, and getting it ready for publication, I start to flesh her out in my mind. Most of this takes place while I'm running along the Hudson River, cooking things that take a long time to cook. Um, doing things that don't look like writing, um, but her composition. And so um, I begin to know what her birth order is, which is very important to me, what she does for a living, who she's married to, how many kids she has. And it's when things start to reach a kind of a critical mass, when I not only know a lot about my protagonist, but about the solar system of friends and family that surround her. And I start to think about them interacting with each other in a way that, that means I'm <laughs> that means I'm hearing voices in my head, which is true, um, that I finally start to sit down and write.
0: So let's talk about Nora Nolan. She is, I would say, upper middle class. She lives on a very special street in Manhattan that is a dead end. So it almost there's almost like maybe a suburban small town feel to her neighborhood. She has twin children. She's married um, to Charlie. Let's talk a little bit about who she is and uh, and what you wanted to explore about her.
1: Well, one of the things that made this book somewhat easier than some of the others is um, that I really like Nora I think she's a genuinely good person um, but she's no plaster saint um, you know she has her little quirks and foibles and um, and she's always sort of running to keep up um, with the kind of varied life she has but I could easily um, picture being her friend. Um, because she's, she's really decent. She wants to do the right thing. Sometimes she's really addled about what the right thing is, um, but she wants to do it. She has a job that on paper seems important and significant and which she thinks is vaguely silly. Um, she is the president of something called the Museum of Jewelry, um, started by a very rich woman, in New York with her own jewelry collection held in contempt by other art institutions and doing incredibly well. And she's, she's been successful despite the fact that she doesn't have that push-push in her soul that so many other people she knows have. Um, her husband has been successful too, but in a city like New York, success is relative. And while he's done very well climbing to the high middle he isn't the kind of master of the universe that he hoped he would be. And that's created a certain tension in their household at this moment with Nora in her late 40s and Charlie in his early 50s.
0: The setting and and the plot are, in a way, they're inseparable because they live in this very special neighborhood that dead ends. It's really a, a tale. It's a tale of a marriage and Nora's story, but it's also a tale of a neighborhood and and what is it like when you are so intimate with your neighbors who have sort of these private selves and public selves. You know, some of the neighbors are judges or therapists, but then they see each other in their pajamas walking their dogs. And um, the dynamics of a neighborhood are always so interesting because you, you can see into each other's lives in a way that maybe you don't even see into some of your friends' lives or your coworkers' lives. So what fascinated you about sort of the neighborhood as, as setting and plot?
1: Well, first of all, one of the things that I found kind of thrilling um, while I've been on book tour is the number of people who live in areas completely different from New York City, which, of course, is where Alternate Side is set, who have said to me, this is my neighborhood. I live in a suburban cul-de-sac, and this is my neighborhood. Or I live in Philadelphia or Boston, and this is my neighborhood. For me... The great beauty of reading um, is that every time we read a book, we almost always conclude that human beings, ourselves included, are more alike than we are different. And so to have people say this to me, when New York is such a powerful character really in the book, um, was pretty exciting. But I think in every novel I've written, there's a kind of a bell jar atmosphere that I try to create, whether it's in a small town um, or a household where the, the... Action of the book is taking place as it does in in one true thing or every last one. I like that idea of looking at a bigger story within a microcosm. And and to some extent, the dead end block on which Nora and Charlie live is just another kind of microcosm for me.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quinlan. Best-selling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self-help, her latest novel is called *Alternate Side*. And New York, I believe, as you said, is is such a character in there. It's it's that the the smallness of the neighborhood is true. It could be anywhere, but the backdrop of New York adds this tension because Nora loves it, and Charlie wants to leave. And you bring in some issues of New York, uh, mainly, you know, parking and how hard parking is and how people try to game the system by parking on one side and parking on the other side. Basically, the incidences and around the book happen because there's an empty lot in this neighborhood and they get to park there. But there's, you know, the person who's really annoying in the neighborhood who wants to make sure people park right and they have to pay. Can you just talk about your experience parking in New York and, and adding this?
1: <laughs> I don't park in New York. It's a miracle I have a driver's license because parallel parking is my bet noir. Um, my husband handles the car aspects of New York. My idea of parking in New York is walking up two blocks, getting on the subway and parking my but on a subway seat. But I mean, the reason that that the whole parking aspect is, is in the book is because it's a metaphor for power and control. And it's a metaphor for power and control among the men. One of the alternate sides and the title works in many different ways. One of the alternate sides on the block is, is the difference between how men see things and how women see things. And um, one of the issues that I wanted to explore is the difference in aging um, between uh, women and men. I think women um, move into middle age and past it with much more equanimity than their male colleagues, at least in my generation. Because with women of my generation, anything that we've gotten substantially in the professional realm is gravy, given what we grew up with. Um, for men, um, there comes that moment when they realize that this might be as far as they're going to go. And one of the ways they play out that kind of frustration and that lack of power and control is by a variety of little things. And one of them in this, uh, in this novel is, um, who gets to park where and who's blocking the entrance to the lot, something that seems so insignificant, and yet um when your life is filled with frustrations takes on a, a kind of an outsized space in your life
0: so with the parking you know you, you were mentioning that it's it, it's kind of some ways that men can assert their power, and you know the the major incident around this and, and a, a major issue in the book is is sort of white privilege and in this block they have um a man Ricky from Puerto Rico who is sort of all of their handyman's and he has nowhere to park when he comes so he parks sort of in front of the entrance but he tries to park in a way to the parking lot where people can still get in and out and there's an incident in the neighborhood where he was blocking it too much for one of the neighbors sensibilities and the neighbor took it out on Ricky Can you talk about this as sort of the the linchpin in the novel?
1: Sure. Um, I think that we, particularly those of us who are fortunate enough to be middle class, live in a society in which an enormous amount of our lives is made possible by working poor people, many of them immigrants. This is the way it's always been in the United States. I am the granddaughter of immigrants. I know this from, from experience. But it's astonishing to me how blind we are to it sometimes, how blind we are to the fact that that the aides at the nursing homes where our parents um, may wind up living um, tend to be working poor people from other countries, um, that, that the babysitter that you hire um maybe likewise this is true with the nolans and i think that there's often on the part of people a failure to recognize those people as as human beings or in, no- in noras case the idea that they're human beings but that somehow she should have a friendly relationship with people who she's paying to do certain tasks that inevitably distances um, them from her. Um, she's a little naive about about the relationship she has both with Ricky and with Charity who um, takes care of their house and used to take care of their kids. So what I often see in terms of the interplay is either people who treat the people that make their lives possible like furniture or people who are unrealistically friendly. I always say in the city that my least favorite people are people who are mean to cab drivers and waitresses. I don't like people who are shirty with the people who serve them. And I think on the block, the people who do this are not only people who sometimes are seen as part of the furniture, they are people who really know these people on the block. This is not not like a waitress who gives you a grilled cheese sandwich and moves on to someone else while you leave the restaurant. These are people who are there day in, day out, um, uh, some of whom work in people's homes and so know when they're fighting, when they're short of money, when they're short-tempered. That's an uncomfortable relationship, and it's uncomfortable in this novel.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quinlan, bestselling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self-help. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side. Nora's definitely in the camp where she is kind to them. She's overly kind to them. You know, Ricky, when his child was ill, she went to his neighborhood to bring him a humidifier. And she sort of realizes when she got there, what am I doing? I'm entering his private space. And while he can come to my private space, it's not maybe a good idea that I came to his. And it was sort of embarrassing for everyone. And also uh, it, it challenged Ricky's power in his own neighborhood.
1: It's absolutely true. I mean, the difference between the two of them is that Nora has invited Ricky into her private space and pays him for inhabiting it. He hasn't asked her to come to his neighborhood and she wouldn't just drop in on a business associate unannounced and uninvited. And yet there's something about the intimacy of the, the a kind of a spurious intimacy of these relationships that makes her feel like she can do this until she's done it, at which point she realizes she's made a terrible error in judgment.
0: And she can't really go back from that. So in a way, I think, as the book continues, it, it sort of deepens maybe her her white guilt and her need to defend Ricky when things go bad in the neighborhood. And I'm wondering about the process of writing fiction as commentary. I mean, this, I, I'm i not saying that this is a commentary, but it includes commentary on on you know the the people who do serve us and the the issues you were talking about with the poor working who serve the wealthier so how do you sort of think about something that you want to make a comment on and still make it engaging in fiction
1: well obviously i'm i'm very comfortable with public commentary i i did it for a living for for decades um, as a columnist, uh, first at the New York Times and then on the back page of Newsweek. But I never in a novel wanted to feel grafted on. And again, I'll circle back to Dickens. I mean, one of the things that I loved about his work from the time I was quite young was the sense that he was telling a rip-roaring yarn um, with characters that I found very engaging. And yet there was always a kind of a, a, a social commentary message um, to those novels. I mean, Bleak House is a, an incredibly engaging novel in terms of plot and character development, at the same time that it's about the, the absurdity of the 19th century British legal system, which, by the way, is... is not very different from the absurdity of the 21st century American legal system, which is one of many reasons why the book endures. So I, I got the sense from his novels that this could sort of be bread in the bone of a novel, but that you never wanted to feel like you, you grafted it on. Uh, I, I mean, many people reading my third novel, Black and Blue, um, thought I had set out to write a novel about domestic violence. And in fact, I had no grounding in domestic violence. I'd never done a story as a reporter or as a columnist about the issues around domestic violence. I wanted to write a novel about the power and control aspects of intimate relationships. And over time, it became clear to me that taking that power and control to the nth degree in terms of an intimate relationship, would result in the kind of abusive marriage that I delineated in that novel. But I would never have done it the other way around. And in fact, as a reporter, I didn't do it the other way around. I'm not sure exactly when I started to do this, although I think I was quite young and and pretty untutored in doing what I was doing. But when, when I was going out to do a story, say, about Oh, homeless families. I always went and did the reporting with individuals first and then did the research on data points after, because I think I was always concerned that if, if I looked at the research first, I was going to try to take the people I met and make them conform to the research. And that that was not ever going to give you a, a rich and vivid sense of individuals. So again, with, with each of the novels, there's been something about the situation in which the characters find themselves that gives rise to this social commentary and not the other way around.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quinlan, bestselling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self-help. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side. So one of the things that I took away from the book, probably more than anything, and, and I guess that's the joy of of being a writer and a reader, is that you just never know what people will take out, but as the sense of impermanence that, you know, everything was impermanent. You you had a line in there where um, they were talking about the house and there was an idea that a house belongs to you. But when you think about a really old house in New York and the number of people that will live there, it's like you're just passing through. The same thing with with jobs and, and marriages in the book and these neighborhood relationship was that everything changed. And I'm wondering if if you were thinking about that, or if that's just um, something that I took out of it.
1: No, it's something I think about all the time. In fact, I'm working on a commencement speech right now that's going to include some of these thoughts, because I think that, you know, one of America's favorite words for decades was closure. We need closure on that. And it gives you the false impression that sort of things get set, right? You have a checklist. It's like college, job, marriage, kids, and anybody who is actually alive will tell you that this is preposterous. You know, I mean, you get a job and then you don't like it and you move on to another job or you get a job and then you're downsized and you look for another job and, and then your other job is in a different town. So the house that you thought was the house becomes the first house and you move on. And boy, if you have kids and you think they're gonna stay the same, have I got a message for you. So the only way that you can really be comfortable in your life is to understand that things are constantly going to morph and change. And this this thirst for closure I think has been pernicious in that it gives people the impression that if you're doing it right, you nail things down. First of all, it's not true. And second of all, it's not really satisfactory. I mean, why in the world would I have the same life at 65 that I had when I was 25? Some of the things are the same. I'm still married to the same person that I married then. Um, I, I live in New York City, which is the city that I love, but so much changes um, in in terms of your work, in terms of your life, and in ways that are that can be kind of glorious. Um, I mean, rolling with the punches is the name of the game. The other
0: idea of impermanence that I think sort of fits with that theme is the idea that you your whole life that you have can unravel in one night, and not necessarily. It, it, it's like the realization happens in one night. And, and that's something that happened to, to Nora, was that she realized that she was in this marriage and things were going along. But then all of a sudden, if she looked at it differently, it had a whole different reality.
1: Well, I do think that there are moments in our lives that knock the status quo off of its axis sometimes it's when someone we love dies. Sometimes it's when one of our kids has a terrible problem or there's a job loss. Um, the, you know, you're tootling along and your life has been a certain way for a long time. And then, you know, it gets, it gets knocked askew, um, by something that happens. And sometimes it's, it's a not, quite that significant moment, but that exposes the fault lines. Um, when someone says or does something that, that makes you think, huh, this is this is not what I think it is. And, and this novel is set in a moment in which that happens, not only for Nora and Charlie, but for a lot of their friends and neighbors.
0: Right. It was, you know, this incident with Ricky in the neighborhood, sort of did make their life unravel but it always makes me think about you know what what kind of awareness are we living with when we think everything's okay and then one small thing knocks it off balance and maybe that's just the way that life is and that we need we need that or we just kind of go crazy every day because nothing is everything feels unmoored but i think it's it's always such a fascinating concept to think about to try to trace back that unraveling to a certain incident and and how how time sort of fits into that.
1: I'm actually more interested in the raveling in the first place. So I'm I'm always interested in the concept of if you zigged instead of you zagged. I think sometimes about the fact that, you know, I I I was barely sentient when I made my college choice and. Um, But I made my college choice and I wound up in New York City, which changed everything for me. And at college, I wound up meeting the person to whom I've been married for 40 years and who is the father of my children. So that changed everything for me. And every once in a while I think... What if I'd gone to Cornell? <laughs> you know. Um, so there are these moments that sort of are responsible for the through lines and the seams in your life that are so haphazard and could have so gone the other way. and i'm I, I'm always mesmerized by that.
0: You're listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quinlan best-selling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self-help. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side. Well, time also plays in with New York. You know, we were talking about New York as a character, and I think uh, Nora was reflecting at one point that New York was better when it was worse, meaning when she had first moved here and it was dirtier and more dangerous. And over time, um, New York changes. And one of the things that, to me, sort of represented... A more uh, affluent New York all around was. You had this character named Phil, and he hung out by where Nora worked at the jewelry museum, and he was kind of a fake homeless guy. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could talk about Phil's character.
1: Yeah, you know, I I find writing novels um very challenging. Um, I face every day with great trepidation. And so I try to do something with every book that will make my life a little easier. And some of it has to do with having fun. And I must say, I really, really liked Phil. Um, You don't entirely know what Phil's deal is because Nora doesn't know what his deal is and he's not given a whole lot away. He's a little bit like the Dalai Lama of pavement. He just comes out with these, these utterances Um, and, and I really just got a huge kick out of his relationship with Nora because part of it goes to what we were discussing before that some of his attitude towards Nora is you need to breathe. You need to slow down. You need to chill out. Um, and, and there's nobody in her life, um, saying that in part, because she's in New York city where, you know, to the extent that anybody says you need to breathe, it's because you haven't really breathed in years. Um, and, and I just like that juxtaposition of the two of them. And every time he sort of showed up on the page, um, it was a good, it was a good writing day, um, for me. But I think one of the things that Nora is nostalgic about when she talks about a, you know, a dirtier, uh, more dangerous New York is to a certain extent, New York city and lots of other American cities. And I would certainly suspect Aspen have become theme parks of, um, incoming inequality. Um, the the entire place sometimes seems to consist of rich people and poorer people who make their lives possible. Um, New York, when Nora first arrived, wasn't so much like that. There was more of a middle class. There were more, I remember when I was in college, um, a lot of um, my classmates didn't live in the dorms. They lived in cheap apartments around the Columbia University campus. When you say that to today's Columbia and Barnard students, they look at you wide-eyed because there is no such thing as a cheap apartment around the Columbia campus. So that that ability to sort of transact in the city, even if you don't have a whole lot of money, um, especially for families um, or people in um, their 40s or 50s, has really been impacted and impaired um, by the way in which the city in some ways has prospered, but in other ways has lost some of that grit that Nora loved so much.
0: Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you that maybe influenced you as a writer?
1: This is actually the epigraph to my collection of columns called Thinking Out Loud, and it's not coincidental that this is what I used for it. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths and wrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. That's William Butler Yeats. Um, Yeats is, has been a huge influence on my life. I love poetry. I read it all the time because there's a precision involved in writing poetry. Um, that every prose writer should try to emulate as much as possible.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or difficult to finish or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: I thought about this um, a lot. But what's tricky and difficult and changes in my work is usually really big muscle stuff. In other words, it's, it's, enlarging a character who has faded too much into the background or moving some some material um, uh, that, that slows down the action of the book. And so I really wanted, if it's okay with you, to read a paragraph that I feel like I got right. Um, Great. I, I've, I feel like I can bring it on home at the ending in a way that, that satisfies me. And so this is the penultimate paragraphs of Alternate Side. New York was a city of the mind. It was a ghost city. And one of the ghosts was Nora Nolan. Young, not so young, single, pregnant, mother, married, not. Somewhere there was the apartment where she and Charlie began the hospital room in which the twins were born, the office where she and Charlie had met with the mediator. Somewhere there was the goose woman, the juggler, the men playing dominoes, the cooler of Dr. Pepper, the aluminum house, George walking his pugs past the place where there had once been a parking lot. New York City was all the strata of the earth. The old was covered over, but it never disappeared. Somewhere in the bake shop, gluten-free, was a flyer for the old pizza parlor and the shoe repair place that was there before that and the kosher deli and so on and so forth down to the rocky remainders of the creek that once flowed through Midtown before there was a Midtown, before there was an America that lay now beneath concrete and tar and earth. The price so many of them had paid for prosperity was amnesia. They'd forgotten where they'd come from, how they'd started out. They'd forgotten what the city really was and how small a part of it they truly were. Reinvention, newness was all, all built on the sturdy back of what was past. Somewhere a metal shard hammered by a Dutch worker centuries before oxidized in the ground beneath layers of street and road. And above it all, the great city now, today, Glittery new, just made a monumental illusion.
0: Do you want to say anything else about that?
1: I just was really satisfied with that when I finished that paragraph. And I am very rarely satisfied with my own work. So when it happens, I try to hold on to the feeling.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anna Quinlan. Anna Quinlan best-selling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self-help. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side. Where do you write?
1: I have a dedicated office in my house in New York City that's at the very top of the house. Um, It's on the fifth floor, so I do uh, about 50 steps many times a day, which is some of what stands between me and gravity. And what
0: do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Oh, I have all kinds of routines to get away from writing. You know, the run in the morning, to some extent. I try to talk to my best friend on the phone most mornings to keep me from writing. Um, And when I'm done for the day, Netflix and Needlepoint, that takes care of business. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? When I'm done a first draft, I give it to my agent and my editor. That's it. I, I, I. I'm mortified by the notion of people reading my work because I'm so self-critical. And um, and both of them are paid <laughs> to do that. Um, and both of them actually have been with me from the very beginning through 19 books. Um, I'm very lucky to have had the same editor and the same publishing house my entire career. My agent is one of my closest friends. Um, so they know um, what I do how I do it. They're good at taking my emotional temperature. My editor and I are good at working together in terms of me having internalized her voice over the years and also understanding um, what she asks me to do um, that I'm not going to do because I just think she's wrong about it. How have you dealt with rejection? Boy, this sounds really terrible. I haven't faced a whole lot of rejection in my life, honestly. I um, for a variety of reasons, um, I wound up at the Times um, at a time when they were hiring a whole lot of women um, because of a class action suit, um, and because of that suit, I was sort of pushed along a kind of a greasy pole of of um, promotion in a way that was only good for me. Uh, there was one time when I wrote a novel um, that I could not seem to get right in the revising. Um, And uh, my editor and my agent scheduled a lunch with me, um, which I knew was not a good sign. And by the time we sat down to lunch, I had already started a new novel, um, which became Black and Blue. And so um, I dealt with the fact that that this was clearly going to get KO'd because it wasn't working out very well. Um, by just putting it away and starting something else. And what is your favorite word? I like words that sort of sound like what they are. So I like, like, I really like flabbergasted. Um, It's a word that you can only use maybe once in a book or in conversation, maybe once uh, uh, a year because it, it resounds so unequivocally. But it, it, words like that, flabbergast or perplex or kerfuffle, um, they, they, just, they just all make me happy because they kind of amuse me.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Anna Quinlan, best selling author of fiction, nonfiction, and self help. Her latest novel is called Alternate Side. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.